Well, all right. Well, come on back and uh, we will grab our Bibles. Grab your Bible and uh, you can open up to the ninth chapter of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. Open up there. And uh, this is sort of uh, three chapters that sort of go together, 8, 9, and 10. Who would think that a lesson on whether or not you could eat meat that was used at a pagan temple or not would be so relevant to our lives today? And in 8, 9, and 10 of 1 Corinthians, Paul talks to us about some principles that are dealing with somebody's freedom in Christ versus somebody who's weak in Christ. And last week I talked to us, we talked to each other, I guess, we had a, a teaching on the two camps of people. There were people who were taking the meat that was eaten from the idol worship and saying, well, Logically, of course I could eat the meat. I mean, of course. There's no such thing as another God. So, whoever that meat has been offered to, what does it matter to me? Because logically and intellectually, I know that there is no other God. And that sort of is in this camp, that camp that says, I'm free to eat the meat. But then you have people, obviously, on the other side of that issue within the Corinthian church that were saying, what do you mean you could eat the meat? I've been living and devoting my life to the worship of these gods, and now I've come out of that, and I've given my life to the one true and living God through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, and that sort of stuff still impacts me, has an impact on me. And if I would do that, it would sort of derail me from what my mission is, is to serve the one true and living God. And so you had this camp, and we sort of said that these are debatable issues within the church, and we could name lots of debatable issues, and I'll go over a few. I mean, can a Christian drink alcohol? Can a Christian smoke? Can a Christian celebrate Halloween or the harvest uh, in the fall? Can a Christian use and uh, have in his home a Christmas tree? And now we are, or can a Christian see R-rated movies or PG-13 movies or just G movies? What can you do? You have, on all of these issues, you have people in this camp where those sorts of things are a stumbling block to them. And then you have sort of people over here who are in liberty to see those things because it doesn't derail their walk with the Lord. And the problem becomes, doesn't it? The problem really presents itself when we exercise that freedom or that inability to go along with the freedom. But the problem becomes is when we point the finger across the aisle and we say, you got to do what I do. 
I mean, right, folks, we're living right in the middle of this, these chapters. Come on, masks, no masks, vaccines, no vaccines. I would even say to you, you ought to consider if you're going to be in one of these camps, do you shop at Target? You say, what do I mean? Well, I walked in there about three months ago in the summertime, and I saw these little baby shirts promoting homosexuality, toddler shirts. So I don't know what camp you're in, but if you're in a camp, remember, Paul is saying here throughout this time, if in debatable issues you're unwilling to reach across the aisle and to at least hear the other person's point of view. And if you're pointing the fingers at people, well, you're missing the boat. Because as Paul puts it, and I'm summarizing it, we live for a greater and higher purpose. And in fact, I want you to see how serious or to remember how serious it is when you won't budge and you are angry and mean and rough with the other side in debatable issues, I want you to see how serious this is. Look back to the, just the last few chapters of chapter 8, starting in verse 9. But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. So let, look up here. Here's the libertarian church party who is free to exercise their Christianity within the realm of eating meat or that have been devoted to a pagan. They're, they're over here, and it doesn't bother them at all. It doesn't stumble them or anything. But over here, these people have lived in this culture for a long time, and to keep going, hearing of it and going back to it or even to participate in it, it defiles, it hurts, it weakens their already weak conscience. So that's the two camps we have. And it says, but beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? That he's talking now to this camp. And he's saying, yeah, I get it. You have liberty, Paul says. You, you got liberty in that area. Your salvation isn't hinging upon that. But if you're down there in the temple meat-eating restaurant, which some of the uh, extra-biblical sources say there were, and you're just yucking it up and, you know, you're just flaunting it sort of in the face of the weak brothers and sisters, well, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? Oh, I'm at liberty to drink alcohol. I live in this camp. And so if somebody comes to my house, man, we're going to have alcohol here. The problem is this person over here is struggling with alcohol and drugs. And Paul says, you wouldn't give up your rights for a brother who's struggling? Are you kidding me? And because of your knowledge, verse 11, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died, but... When you thus sin against the brethren, in other words, hey, libertarian party, you freedom lovers. 
when you thus sin against the brethren, you wouldn't lay down your rights for a brother and sister in the Lord when they have a different opinion about debatable issues and you wound their weak conscience in any way. Listen to this. You and I, we sin against Christ. Wow. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. I have the right to eat this meat. I, it doesn't affect me in any way, Paul says. I could eat this pagan, so-called pagan meat. There's no, there's no idols. There's only one true and living God. It doesn't bother me in the least. But if it bothers my brother, and I keep doing it just because I have the right, we sin against Christ. And so look at this. What is your life? We talked about this. What is your life? Is your life, is your life a stumbling block to others, or is your life a stepping stone? Think about it. Are you building others in Christ even when they have you, you know, you're over here and you're looking across the aisle and you're saying, that is the stupidest opinion I ever thought about. Never thought that sort of way. And yet Paul says, lay down your rights. You never have to give up the truth. None of that. And yet wouldn't you do it for a brother? Or if you're on this side of the aisle, by the way, this side of the aisle, the weak part, are the people who abstain. And they love to abstain because it makes them feel more holy because they abstain way more than those people do. And there's a lot of people over here who abstain and don't do and love to live according to the rules and they think they're more mature and they think they're more advanced in sanctification and they look across the aisle and they say, look at these people, are they even Christians? We get a whole church at large, not here. We get a whole church of people who live like that. And Paul says, my goodness, folks, either side, do you want to be a stumbling block to them? Or do you want to be a stepping stone to build them up in Jesus Christ? Man, what's a stepping stone imply? You're going to hate this. Man, my brother, six years older than me, we had to, he, he was in sixth grade. I was in kindergarten. Oh, man, I hated this. And every day, when walking to school, there were four schools in our area. <laughs> and he made me jump over a barbed wire fence at a high school that the high school didn't want you to go over, then run across the field real fast to escape like the, you know, the principal and the security people, even if they had, I don't even know if they had it, and run to the next fence and jump over, and he'd say, Just get down and I'll go over first and then you climb up and stuff like that, right? And, you know, what did I have to do? I didn't want to do it, man. I had to get down on my knees, hands. He was weighty. He's in sixth grade. I hope he's watching right now. And then he, you know, he'd push off, and it was hard, and it was difficult, and I didn't want the footprints. But we had to get to school. 
By the way, there was a much easier route, but he would never listen. And one time I got my jacket caught and landed on my back, and that was miserable, but that's for another day. What I'm saying is sometimes you don't like to be the stepping stone. It goes against our carnal nature. What do you mean I have to defer to the other? What do you mean I'm trying to help them reach the top or Jesus? Nah, I'd rather declare my rights. You see, but the whole message of the gospel is the one who had every right to come down from the cross. He wasn't guilty, folks. Deferred his rights for the greater good. And that's what we're called to do. And now you're saying, well, I don't really feel like that. Well, let me turn you somewhere. And if you don't get this, well, I hope you get this. It's this. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Go there, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And let's think about something for a minute. For we do not command ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if, verse 13, 2 Corinthians 5, we are beside ourselves, it's for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it's for you. Watch this. Watch. For the love of Christ compels us, or in the, New, or in the King James, constrains us. It's like the idea, you ever like greased a watermelon and you put pressure on it and it just goes, and it just spits out. You can't catch it. It's the love of God constrains you. It just propels you out, compels you. Because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves. You don't live for yourself anymore, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, watch this, if anyone is in Christ, you love to quote this. I love to quote this. He is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. By the way, I know your ministry now, and so do you. When people say, I don't know what my purpose is, I don't know what I'm supposed to do, well, you're supposed to point people to God through Jesus Christ to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You're a minister of reconciliation wherever you are. Anyway, that is, verse 19, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Listen, watch this. Why am I reading you this? Because when I read chapter 8, 9, and 10, there's this carnal part of me that chafes against everything it says. Carnal, left to myself, not a born, you know, my old nature. But in the Spirit, as a new person, did you catch that, 2 Corinthians 5, 17? You're a new creation. When you become a Christian, watch this. If you don't know anything else about Christianity, catch this. 
When you become a Christian, the Bible says that you don't improve. That's not what the Bible says. You become new in Christ. Clean slate. New life. The life that was formerly based on your old man is now based on the new man or woman. And that's that you no longer live for yourself. You live for him who made you. And you're reconciled to God. Now, why am I telling you that? Because when I read 8, 9, and 10, do you remember when Paul said this, examine yourself to make sure you're in the faith? Hmm, that's interesting. One of my favorite authors, and I'm going to have Gabe put this up here, is a guy named Ray Stedman, and he wrote a book called Authentic Christianity. What does authentic mean? It means the real deal. It means you're not a copy. You're not a fake. We're not fakes. We're new in Christ. Are we sinners saved by grace? Yes. Are we always going to do perfectly and wonderfully? No. But we're going, we have a new life based on Jesus Christ, empowered by the Spirit. And here's what Ray Stedman says. The authentic Christian life is essentially and radically different from the natural life lived by a man or woman. Outwardly, it can be very much the same, but inwardly, the basis of living is dramatically different. Christ is a part of every wholesome action, the corrector of every wrong deed or thought, the giver of joy and the healer of hurt, no longer merely on the edges of life. Christ is the center of everything. Life revolves around him. As a consequence, life comes into proper focus. Despite outward trials, a deep peace possesses the heart. Strength grips the spirit, and kindness and joy radiate abroad. This is really living. You can say to yourself, well, my goodness, why is he bringing this up? Why are we talking about this? Because, see, here's what I think you can do when you examine yourself if you're in the faith. Are you willing to give up your life and defer to others on issues you really believe in but are debatable issues in the church so that the other brother and sister won't be stumbled? (laughs) I'm bowing my head because I got to tell you, folks, this is where it gets rough for me. I got a lot of opinions. If you live around me, you probably know them. (laughs) And I don't say that in a good way. I'm just saying the Lord's working on me. And last week in chapter 8, he brought us into this conversation through something that you might think is archaic or, uh, you know, of the past. Idols, meat given to idols or worship or, or sacrifice to idols. And now watch this. Remember that when we did chapter 8, we also did chapter 10, 14 through the rest of the chapter. Because it seems like Paul is saying two different things. So we addressed that last week. We skipped chapter 9. Well, today we're going to do chapter 9. And here's what it says in verse 1. As we sit here, watch this, and if we're not Christians, we ask ourselves, why not? We're here at church. Is Christ real? Did he die and rise again? Is he able to give me new life as he 
pays the penalty for my sins and takes on what was coming to me. That's for the unbeliever. But for the believer, see, this is a time to examine your life and my life. This is hard, man, for me. Verse 1, chapter 9, am I not an apostle, Paul says. Now remember, Paul's writing this, and he's just said, don't make this thing a stumbling block, whether you're in that camp or that camp. And now, out of the blue, you're almost like, what is he talking about? It just makes no sense that he would put it in here. But I think after you read it, you're going to say it makes perfect sense. Paul is giving you a defense of why he has every right to do the things he does. And in particular, be paid for his Christian work. That's what he's using now as an example. But there's a deeper issue or a deeper lesson, and we'll come to that. Am I not an apostle? How was Paul an apostle? You see, in one sense... The book of Romans tells us we're all sort of apostles. We're sent out ones. We're messengers. We're followers of Christ. But we're not an apostle like Paul was an apostle or the 12 were apostles. Why? Because we didn't witness the resurrection. Those who witnessed the resurrection were qualified to be apostles. And I could show you the scriptures of that. Of course, Paul saw Jesus at a later time as he's walking to kill the Christians in Syria. And the Lord appears to him and says, what are you you doing, Paul? And you know the story. Paul then becomes a born-again follower of Christ and plants churches all over the ancient world. He says, am I not an apostle? He's building his case for the rights that he has. Everybody tracking? And then he says, am I not free? He's free. You're free. You understand that, right? The Bible tells us when you become free, the truth, you know, the truth sets you free, and you become free indeed. Well, I always say to myself, because I'm sort of a smart aleck, but I'm sort of inquisitive, well, t- come on, don't give me the Christianese. Give me what it is I'm free of. And Paul tells us in Romans 6, 7, and 8, you're free. Listen to this. Most people say, wow, great, I'm free to sin. I can just ask for forgiveness. Paul says that's sheer stupidity. It's not that you're free to sin now, although your sins are forgiven. It's you're free not to sin. And you're free. Once that you were slaves to sin, the Bible tells us, Romans 6, 7, and 8, now you're slaves to righteousness. Why are you a slave to righteousness? Let's put it on the seminary test. The answer is because you're a new creation. You see how it comes full circle? You're a new creation in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. And you're free. You don't have to live by rules and regulations anymore because remember, 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 remember Paul said when asked or when writing in Timothy, it's not what I believe, it's whom I believe, Paul said, that sets him free. It's whom you believe. 
It's whom you believe, not what you believe. It's whom you believe. And so you're free. You're a sent one. You're free. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? You understand that now. He's saying, I saw him. Are you not my work in the Lord? Here he's building his credentials. And you know what he's saying? He's saying, listen, this is a hard place to plant a church. Corinthian, or Corinth, I mean, on this little isthmus with all this, these vices and prostitution and pagan sex worship and all the tough, dark stuff and the, you know, the, the, the temple up on the hill. I mean, folks, this is a hard place to plant a church. But, Paul says, not bragging but boasting in the Lord. He's saying, but I stuck it out for 18 months. You can read about that in the book of Acts. I, the book of Acts tells us, Paul worked as a tent maker with his hosts. And he'd work, 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 so he wouldn't be a burden to the people. And then at night or in the late afternoon, he would teach and teach, and he just poured out his life for this, this people, these people in this church. Are, not you, are you not my work in the Lord? In other words, the credentials are, Paul says, not in a bragging way. He's saying, look what's come, to ba- uh, come about, this church God used me, not bragging, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the power of the world to build this church up, and that's a credential. I'm the pastor. Paul's saying that, not me. If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Now, let's just take a time out right here. Here's where it's going to get a little uncomfortable. You see what Paul's saying here? Paul's not some super spiritual guy with like Superman cape that's out of the ordinary Christian. He's saying, you're my seal. And what it would happen was when people would send something to somebody in the ancient world, like if I was going to send you goods, I would seal it somehow and they would seal it several times with my seal, so that when it arrived over there and you went to open it, you'd go, oh, good, the seal's not broken. This is genuine. This is the real stuff. In fact, when they did wills in the ancient world, they'd seal it seven or so times so that it hadn't been opened because you know what happens when people get around money. And it would reflect the person who was dying, the decedent's wishes. So what Paul is saying is, look out here at you, the ones I'm writing to. You're evidence of my apostleship, my sentship, <laughs> my messengership. The Lord directed me to you. See, he's building a case for rights. My defense to those who examine me is this, verse 3. Oh, wait a minute. I didn't get to the uncomfortable part. I want you to see one great mark of what a Christian is, of whom they believe. I want you to see this. Is your life, whether you're gregarious or not gregarious, whether you know, you're an extrovert, introvert, doesn't matter. Is, watch, it's going to hurt a little bit. Is your life, are you able, by the power of the Spirit, now he does all the work, but are you a person that are bringing people into the Lord? To the Lord's table, to the Lord's table. Are you bringing people to the Lord? Or are you just cruising? Am I just cruising? Am I just coming into church and just sort of giving my money and, you know, maybe sing a song or two or whatever? See, but Paul is telling us and showing us here, even through this defense of his rights, that one of the marks 
of a Christian is they're able to share the gospel with other people. Now, by the way, I think there's a way to do that that's not weird. (laughs) You're like, wow, that's weird that the pastor would say that. I think that the Bible just calls us to be, watch this, supernaturally natural. We're going to get into that here at the the end. Paul tells us how to do it. So watch this. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and drink? So Paul is building a case about who he is so that he can show us that he has the right to be paid. Watch this. He says, do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, who was Peter? Wait a minute, Peter had a wife? There's some traditions that tell us he's celibate. But anyway, don't we have a right to do these things, to be comfortable even as we're uncomfortable and moving around the world? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Remember, he was a tent maker. Whoever goes to war at his own expense or excuse me, whoever goes to war at his own expense. In other words, do people go to war and the government doesn't feed them? No. If you go to war for the United States, they're going to send you the rations, right? Or how about this? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit. That's weird. Of course you would eat of the fruit. If you do the work, you're going to get some of the food. Or who tends a flock and doesn't drink of the milk of the flock? No, if you're in that position, you're going to have some milk to eat, right? You're going to be supplied by the work that you do. Now watch. Why do you think Paul picked those three images? (laughs) Because he often tells us, the Bible often tells us, folks, that Christians are at war. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities. We're at war. We're people who are in the Lord's army, so to speak. Watch this one. (laughs) He's the vine. We're the branches. Earlier on in 1 Corinthians, he described the church as a field that he was planting into. This is no coincidence here. Paul's saying, who plants a vineyard and doesn't eat of its fruit? Of course, he's evoking those Images, or who tends a flock and doesn't drink of the milk of the flock? Well, we serve the great shepherd, but for those who are leading a church, they're the under-shepherd of the shepherd, who have sheep and care for them and love them, and shepherding's a lonely business, folks. And we could do a whole sermon on that. But he's saying here, the point is, By worldly standards even, if you work for something, you ought to be paid for it. See it? Watch this. Do I say these things, verse 8, as a mere man, or does not the law say the same also? The law agrees with me. Paul's putting together a perfect legal argument. The law agrees with me. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Later in Timothy, by the way, he uses the same verse to say how they should pay the pastors and the elders, right? And I got news for you. Even I know this. Do you know this? Oxen can't read. 
So he's not writing to the oxen to tell them what rights they have. What he's saying here is, if an oxen works and fallows the field and picks up the corn and everything and some, some extra falls off, the oxen are perfectly well, uh, welcome to eat. Don't put a muzzle on them. Oh, geez. Don't, don't do this. Don't put a muzzle on them so they can't eat. That would just be cruel and mean. Paul's building his case for people in the church to be paid. You say, well, where are you going with this? Well, I'm not going anywhere, but the Lord is. Or does he, and that, by the way, that comes from Deuteronomy 25.4. In other words, it comes out of the law. Verse 10, or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written that he who plows should plow in hope. Hope for what? Well, obviously hope that he'd see spiritual fruit, but also that he would be paid. He wouldn't have to, you know, scrounge around and worry about his wife or his family. That's what this is talking about. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? In other words, it's not a great thing. It's just normal. You're like, get on. I, I heard this before. If others are partakers of this right are you, over you, are we not even more? Now, remember, he's writing to the Corinthian church. You guys watching? You guys paying attention? Okay. Okay. So basically, Paul's making the argument that those who teach us, shepherd us, bring us up spiritually have the right to expect and to receive support. You're like, wow, what does this have to do with examining ourselves? Well, here it comes. Nevertheless, watch this. Paul says we have not used this right but endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Now, I want you to take a little time out here for a minute. You're going to see here that Paul had every single solitary right to expect that he would be paid for what he did at Corinth. But Paul tells us through the rest of this chapter he didn't receive or wouldn't take payment, that he worked in the tent-making shop and that, you know, he wouldn't make payment. Now watch, time out. This is a debatable issue. There's this one camp over here that says, you better, you know, come on. I'm perfectly free. Give me the money. And then there's this other camp over here that says, nah, not taking anything. And often we have people come into the church and they'll quiz us about these things. And, and wonder about these things. But what Paul is doing here is he's telling you that he's laying down his rights for the greater good of the gospel. Now, the time out is this. If you read Philippians, Paul received gifts, monetary gifts. And you can read it in a couple other places, Paul received some gifts. And some people, some commentators say, yeah, he never asked for gifts, but if people were willing and moved by the Spirit to do it, then he would gladly receive. And I, I think that's probably true to some extent. But here's the other thing I want you to know. Paul had amazing discernment according to the Holy Spirit, and he knew, watch, he knew that there was something at Corinth or in the environment of the church that if he even hinted about getting some money, it was going to stumble his brothers. 
you know, we sort of made a decision on that thing. I don't think there's anything at all wrong with passing the plate. In fact, in some places, it's surely the right thing to do. They, they should pass the plate because you know what? The Bible tells us in Paul, uh, Paul's writing, or through Paul's writing that we should be planned up, thought up, prayed up, and consistent in our giving. And this just gives you an opportunity for a blessing. Pass the plate. But as we came into this area of the world, at least from our perspective, we started to see a lot of people who were coming into the church that had been burnt by people asking for money. And it was a hindrance to the gospel. We were in one camp. Other people were in another camp. And we weren't pointing our fingers across the aisle and saying, you should do what we do. We just did it because of the environment that we were in, according to what the Holy Spirit, through the Word, was saying to us. You get it? And for us, it's been an amazing blessing. The Lord is blessed incredibly financially, boasting in the Lord. And that's between you and He. So when we come back to this, we have people here that will come up to us and say, man... You better not pass the plate. Or, man, why do you got a plate or a box back there? You should be passing the plate. And they use sort of these scriptures to kind of prove it. And yet, I think people forget that Paul received money. He just knew he shouldn't do it here. You get it? In other words, this is one of the issues that was dividing people. And Paul didn't want it to be a, a, a division, so what he says is, verse 13, do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the temple? In Numbers 18, Leviticus 6, 7, 27, Deuteronomy 18, you could see that when people went to the God's temple, part of the sacrifices were given to the Levites, the priests, the people who ministered, and they would partake of these things. Yes, even according to the law. It was built in by God that they should be paid. Yes, Paul says, that's true. But I have used, excuse me, even so, verse 14, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live for the gospel. He's built the case. You can be paid. But I have used none of these things, Paul says, nor have I written these things that it should be done so to me. For it would be better for me, is this a strong statement or what? To die that that anyone should make my boasting void. By the way, what does Paul boast in always? The cross, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's not boasting in himself. He's boasting in the Lord. And he says, in this time, at this place, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, if we do this, I know people are going to be precluded from coming to the gospel. So guess what Paul says? I'll even forsake my right to the money. <laughs> Who here would say that? So he says, but I have used none of these things, nor I have written these things, that it should be done so to me, for it would be better for me to die. Verse 16, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. He was saying here, 
listen, I know I need to live. I know I need to pay the bills. This is what Paul's saying. It's sort of like me in NFL football. If they would let me play for an NFL football team, they'd have to sign me to a rookie contract. And I don't know what it is. It's a million bucks or so. But the secret is, I'd pay them to play. Of course, I'm not good enough, and that's a problem. <laughs> what Paul's saying right here is, I don't care about the money. I know I need it. But you've played, God's placed something in me. And that's to get the gospel out to all people, to all men and women, to all boys and girls, so that they can be, as I read you in 2 Corinthians 5, reconciled back to God. That's my ministry. I would pay you to do this stuff. Money don't matter. I know I need it for the bills. I know I need it to be a responsible citizen. But in this instance, because I don't want to stumble you and I want you to be with God for eternity, don't pay me. It don't matter. What a high view of the gospel. That's what authentic Christians do. It's what pours out of an authentic Christian. They lay their lives. They get down on the wet, muddy field so that the older brother can go up and over and kill your back so he could get to school. Now, I wasn't so great in that, so don't, I'm not patting myself on the back. Well, that's what we are. We're to be a, a, a stepping stone, not a stumbling block. And Paul says money can be a stumbling block. And I know it, Paul says. So we'll just eliminate that temptation. Watch this. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of or necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. For verse 17, if I do this willingly, I have a reward but if against my will I have been trusted with a stewardship, by the way, what's your stewardship? To be successful? No. To be faithful. Just do what the Lord asks. I have been entrusted with a stewardship. What is my reward then? That when I preach that gospel or the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. He was convinced in Corinth if he did that, there would be many people who would be stumbled and wouldn't come to the Lord, so he gave up his right. Wow. For though I am free from all men. Do you catch that? Here he is over in this camp, or here he is over in this camp, and he's, he's, he's free, and he's learned that the only person's opinion that matters is God himself. He lives for the Lord. Of course, he wants to live in peace with all men, but as, it's, as much as it's up to him, sometimes that doesn't work out. And so his opinion matters to him. God's opinion matters to Paul. And he says, I'm free. I'm free that way. I'm so free. My circumstances stop bothering me now. There's a word for us right there. Circumstances. I live outside of my circumstances. The Lord has taken my circumstances and sort of 
put them over there and I live here. And so whatever happens there, it doesn't really matter. I'm free, Paul says. And he had every circumstance, folks. And the one that gets me the worst, though, is that viper biting him. Ooh, man, I wouldn't dig that at all. But whatever. He had every circumstance, right? And he says, outside of that, I am free, but watch. But I've made myself a servant to all. See, somebody who's an authentic Christian, born again, spirit-filled, has imputed righteousness, sins forgiven, have new life in Christ, one of the things that starts pouring out of them is they serve others. I'm not telling tales here. This person allows me to share it. We, we had the prayer group here the other day, maybe about a month ago. And there was this young lady who was just really dealing with something and was really upset about it. And we were praying for her. And then somebody came along, and they were actually sitting on the opposite ends right here. And somebody came along, and they were really upset about something too. And I mean, they were both sort of, you know, tearing up. And uh, this person shared what was bothering with her. And that person right there, literally within one minute, scooted, is that a word? Scooted down sat right beside him, put their arm around the person, and started praying for him. And the person who skewed down here, their countenance, it just melted away, the sadness and the pain and the struggle and their countenance and everything about them. There was just joy and love and peace. You could just see it in the person. And we commented there that it's embodying that verse. When you serve others, folks, you've never been freer because you're doing, listen to this, you're doing what God has always intended you to do is to walk in his will, and his will is that we be ministers of reconciliation. And then he says this, I made myself a servant to all that I may win the more. What was the most important thing with Paul, what was the most important thing is that he loved God, glorified God, and right at the top of the list is that many more would come to have eternal life through his life as God ordained it. So listen, I want you to go home or do it right now. Put, I don't make lists. I don't know if that surprised you. I don't know if it does or not, but I, if I made a list, I'd lose it. So I don't just don't make a list. But if we had lists, what's at the top of your list to be the president of the company, to be the PTA mom, to be, um, you know, the head of the Kiwanis Club, uh, to have my kid as the prom king? Yeah, I know. Make him be the quarterback of the football team. Uh, or, or would right at the top be win more people to Christ? See, that's what Paul said. Paul said the overarching theme of his life as he glorified God was that he would win more. And he said this, and to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without 
law. To the weak I became as, a weak, as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I by all, by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be partaker of it with you. You go, wow, what a chameleon changing his testimony everywhere he goes. I don't think that's, that's what that means. I think that Paul says there are a lot of people in this world and they have a lot of interests. And the trouble with the Christian church, I think Paul's saying, is we won't come around or alongside of people who think differently than us. Now, you see, he was Jewish and he wanted to minister there, but God sent him and had other thoughts towards him. But what he said was, if I go into a town, and there's a synagogue there, I'll go right into the synagogue and participate and get to know people in an authentic way and love them and maybe go over to their house and have lunch and listen to them and then share the gospel. But maybe I go into a town and there's just debauchery and no religious training and maybe they're just outside of the law and they don't have anything like that and yet God's calling me to go to this town. Well, I'll go and I'll go sit at the football game with them. Maybe I hate football. I like football. But maybe I'll, or maybe I'll go to the concert. I don't even like the concert, but I'll go because I love the person genuinely and I'll listen to what they like and I'll feel what they feel and I'll hear their stories and I won't just jump in and bat them over the head with all the stuff I want to bat them over the head. I'll just let them tell me and I'll love them and I'll bring them food and I'll share a letter. And, I, and there might be people all the way in between all of that. There might be some weak people in the weak camp. There might be some strong people. But whatever, whoever it is, I'll come alongside people and I'll love them and they'll see the love of Christ, and they'll want to know what's different, and then when they want to know what's different, you share it with them. But you got to be willing to be a stepping stone. you got to be willing to get out of your comfort zone. How about this? William Barclay says this, that man or woman who can never see anything but his or her own point of view and who never makes any attempt to see the mind and heart of others will never make a pastor or an evangelist or even a friend. You want me to read that again? Okay, I will. That man or woman who can never see anything but his or her own point of view. Who here loves your own point of view? I'm raising my hand. The one who can never see anything but his or her own point of view and who never makes any attempt to see the mind and heart of others will never make a pastor or an evangelist or even a friend. We're not saying, remember, we've talked about this on several occasions, don't, don't change your testimony. Don't let the environment where you go <laughs> erode your witness for Christ. Paul never did that. You can go places. You can go to the Christmas party. And you could stand up for Christ and learn about the people and love them. What's wrong in the Christian church is we have Christian cocoons. And we just want to stay around each other all the time. Well, how about inviting somebody who doesn't think like you to lunch and listening to them? Wouldn't that be a radical thought? 
Paul says, the mark of a Christian authentically is that you'll do this. And then he says this, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it, and everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Woo! Well, what's that talking about? Well, Paul often used athletic or battlefield uh, uh, stories or uh, showed you a picture that way so you could uh, hit home a Christian church or truth. We're to run the Christian life, folks. I mean, run, and maybe you need to walk, and that's okay too, but that means there's going to be some big old hills, and you're going to be out of breath, and maybe sometimes you'll be downhill, but you're to run a race, and I want you to see something Paul says. There's only one person who's going to win the race, Paul says. By the way, they had a companion to the Olympic Games on the Isthmus of Corinth. It was called the Isthmus Games. So he's taking from something they know. But did you notice that one person wins? He says, don't worry about winning compared to somebody else. You're not competing with other people here. Like, I'm not looking over at Andy's race and going, my gosh, he's way out in front of me. You're competing with yourself according to what God has given you and asked you to do. And he's saying, this is going to be tough. Running's no fun, folks. I got a good friend in here. I love what he says about running, and he runs a lot. He says, I love it when it's over. Why? Because it's fun to do, yeah, but the real thing happens when you're, it's over. You've trained your body. You've done it. Because I don't know if you know this, but after you run, during the run, but after, endorphins get released, and there's like this thing called a runner's high. But also, what else does it tell you? Man, I've done what I needed to do to progress in this more and more. You get it? So when it's over, it's fantastic. I got up and I did it. Yes, praise the Lord. And I'm running. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. In other words, you're to discipline yourself. You say, well, wait a minute. Isn't this about grace? Yes, it's about grace. But once you get into the family of God, the Bible tells you in Hebrews that you're to pursue holiness. You. You are holy, but you're to pursue holiness. In other words, Romans 8, 28 and 29, God's shaping you into the image of his son. It's called sanctification. And one of the ways that God does that is through discipline. Discipline in what? Well, I got to tell you something. We got a book downstairs for you. Spiritual disciplines for the Christian life. And what are the disciplines? I mean, it's Praise, worship, Bible intake, evangelism, serving, stewardship, fasting, silence, and solitude, journaling, learning, perseverance, and the disciplines. Why would you participate in a discipline? Because 1 Timothy 4.7 says, discipline yourself for the person, purpose of godliness. Do you notice here, he says, oh, man, this kind of makes me break out in hives. I don't just do this willy-nilly. 
There's a purpose and a plan to the thing that I'm doing here, Paul says. I run thus, not with uncertainty. I don't beat, beat the air. I, we have a plan here. Run, 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 get better, improve, not to measure myself against somebody else, but that you would become into a place of more Christ-likeness. So I have a whole thing, but I'm not going to do it. Are you participating in the disciplines? You say, wait a minute, discipline? Am I doing it out to gain favor with the Lord? No, you're doing it in response to everything that the Lord has done for you. Did you catch that? He's not going to love you anymore if you do 65 Bible studies in a row. He already loves you as much as he can love you. (laughs) He sent his son to die for you. But he wants you to grow in Christ-likeness. And that's where the disciplines come in. And I read them to you. Now watch this. And we'll finish it out. Moreover, brethren, chapter 10, I don't want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our example. Now, you catch what he's talking about here, right? The people of God moving out of Egypt through the Red Sea into the wilderness. And he's talking about what happened in the wilderness. And these things, the Old Testament stuff, became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And we do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, you could read about this in Numbers 25, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Remember that? Nor complain. I love that one. As some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. They were, the complaining got them, man. Now all these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition upon whom the end of the ages have come. These are types and pictures of New Testament reality, but why, how does it fit in? Why does it fit here? What are we talking about because of the next verse? Therefore, let him who thinks he stands Take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, you will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. You know what? When I talk about this stuff, see, this to me is like right at the core of Christianity. Because you know what Paul is saying right there? Hey, folks who are in this camp the Liberty Party, of which I think Paul considers himself on some of these issues. Be really careful. The temptation is that there to see the miracle that God has done in your life like the miracles God did in the lives of the people of God and to be tempted to flaunt your rights in such a way that you make other people stumble or sin. He says, let him who thinks he stands free 
be careful. Paul was one of those people. You see, folks, this is the heart of Christianity. I don't know about you, but if you're being honest, the stuff I see on TV and social media, it ain't the gospel. It's none of this. It's this. I demand my rights, and we're going to do it my way. What, what if we really, really believed that God had a greater and higher purpose than just our paycheck or our white picket fence or our entertainment or our vacations? What if we really believed that the Lord Jesus is coming back in judgment? And until that time, the Lord, as new creations, is asking us to move out and to share the gospel of Jesus Christ so that as many as he could get into heaven with him would come into heaven with him and we would play just our little, little part in that. Somebody this morning said, no offense, they just said it, and I, I understand it totally. Sometimes I just don't know what my purpose is. <laughs> There's your purpose. No matter where you are, no matter where you've been, are you reaching out to others who don't think like you? I think that's authentic. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do. We come here and we listen to hard things. They're uncomfortable. <laughs> and uh, Lord, I confess that I haven't always wanted to reach out to people who thought differently than me. And I pray you'd soften my heart and soften our hearts. I pray you'd give us great maturity and wisdom in learning these things and living these things as we move out and come alongside other people. As William Barclay pointed out, how could we even be a friend if we're not willing to listen? So help us here, Lord, because I know I can hear it. I can almost feel people saying, but what about the truth? Well, Lord, you've never called us to deny the truth. We wouldn't do that or don't want to do that. Help us to live in truth, but also in love, in circumstances that take a lot of relational courage. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. And everybody says, amen.